Katie, all news is biased one way or another. Sometimes it's unconscious bias, simply human nature. And sometimes it's conscious, like when I try to ignore news about your part of the country melting into the ocean because it's boring. The outcome is the same. Bias in the news impacts how we see the world. Adding in online filter bubbles to the mix has made getting the full story harder than ever. Crown News, the world's first news comparison platform, has taken a different approach to improving the broken media ecosystem. Crown News gives you the ability to compare how sources with different biases are covering a story, so you can easily see if it's being spun to fit a political narrative. Their app also alerts you to any news blind spots that you may have, stories that were only covered by one side of the political spectrum. As a listener of Block and Reported, you're likely hoping to move beyond regurgitated partisan hackery. Ground News enables you to do that for every story you read. It's a place for anyone who is tired of predictable mainstream narratives and interested in leaving their silos to see the fuller story. Learn more and try it for yourself by downloading the free Ground News app or try it on the web at ground.news blocked and reported. Again, that's ground.news blocked and reported. Jesse, how's it going? Any uh, big plans for 4th of July? Katie, I am practically too messant with patriotism. How about you? Oh, God. You just have to start the podcast in the most fucking disgusting <laughs> way possible. Trigger warning. Jesse's using disgusting terminology. My flag is at full mass when it comes to America. <laughs> My parents listen to this show, Jesse. Uh, I, I take it you're just sort of cowering inside away from the heat and stuff. You, you don't really like America. I don't really do holidays. I had Somebody mentioned that it was a holiday weekend, and until like now pretty much i thought it was a uh, memorial day weekend <laughs> you're like shit i haven't bought a turkey yet i do my only plan is to so it has been very hot and dry here in the pacific northwest it has cooled down but over the, the past weekend it was like 110 degrees just melting hot and uh it's been very dry we had we generally june is is called january it's sort of a gloomy wet and cold month but not this year it's been super super dry and uh I, you know we have a wildfire problem out here in the West. So my plan for the 4th of July is to make myself a little badge and put on my yellow safety jacket and walk around confiscating fireworks from my neighbors, telling them <laughs> I'm from the city. I like that. Or you could do a, uh, a like an explosive gender reveal party <laughs> for America. For so we can America. finally find out, find out if America is a boy or a girl. It's a country. Uh, I am actually this weekend – if you're on the free feed, this will already be over by the time you hear this. I'm a groomsman for my friend's wedding, so I'm helping to plan a bachelor weekend in Virginia that happens to fall on the 4th. Uh, this is just a group of, of you know, my friend and, and some mutual friends and his friends. They're basically normies. They don't listen to the podcast. Uh, the activities I've planned, I've included, like, we're going to sit around and make a list of our favorite YouTube videos, <laughs> uh, our, our favorite instances of, quote, retweeting. <laughs> Uh, stuff like that. I think it's like my friend asked me, he's like, let's do a lot of outdoor stuff. Let's go for hikes. I, I don't think so. That's not my strong suit. This is great. This is like if Jesse Single uh, planned a theme park. <laughs> oh my God. Plot, plot, dude, when the Blockton reported empire has, has swollen to eight times its size, we should totally have a theme park. Um, it'll be lots of indoor activities. So yeah, I hope everyone, uh, has or had a good fourth. Remember that depending on your politics, America is either the greatest place on the earth or, uh, a hard horrible dystopian late capitalist shithole. It's only one or the other, nothing in the middle. <laughs> nothing in the middle allowed. Katie, what is the name of this podcast that is, and I will repeat this terminology, too messant with patriotism? This is Blocked and Reported, and I am a disgusted Katie Herzog. <laughs> I am a too, a too messant Jesse Single. Did you just uh, learn a new word or something? Please. I did, I did. I try to learn one new word every day and then just uh, use it a few times. It's from your, your boner vocabulary list. Did you know the uh, certain Inuit tribes have 20 words for boners? <laughs> That was a hate crime. You just did a hate crime on the podcast. <laughs> it's a very some tribes are very horny, is what I'm saying. Um, all right, so this week we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a slate advice column. You, I'm I'm emphasizing this. You wanted to update everyone on the Nicole Hannah Jones situation, right? Uh huh. Yeah, just a quick update. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then we're going to talk about uh, what else we got. We got, oh, there was a, a big follow-up story about an interesting controversy from the sci-fi world involving a story about someone whose gender 
is attack helicopter. I will explain. Katie, what should we start with? Did you want to do the Barclays thing too? Oh my God, yeah. Maybe we should start with the Barclays thing. Did you listen to that yet? I did, yeah. All right, so we'll drop it here. Gender identity, gender expression, sexual attraction, sexuality. They're all different elements to who we are. Somebody can be transgender and gay, transgender and bi, transgender and straight. They may be transgender and feel feminine, but express themselves in a masculine manner. There doesn't need to be a link between them. Where people go wrong is they think they need to understand it. You don't need to understand it, but to be a better ally, there are three things that you need to do. You need to wise up, stand up and show up. Wising up is about educating yourself and not expecting the LGBT plus community to educate you. Standing up is about standing up for the community as if you're part of the community. And showing up is about being visible in your allyship. It's about saying I'm an ally and being proud to be an ally, adding your pronouns to your email signatures and social media sites, and observing Remembrance Days, like Trans Day of Remembrance, and sharing those on social media too. You don't need to be an expert, but by helping yourself and educating yourself, you're helping others. You're saying, I'm an ally, and I think about diversity and inclusion. And that is the first step to brilliant allyship. Thanks, everybody. Katie, I just want to say after I listen to this, my heart just swole with gratitude that Barclays, a billion-dollar multinational bank, is giving me uh, social justice advice. Who better, right? What I really like about this this clip is that it's the like lowest bar possible to being a good ally. It's just performance. I know, I know, and, and I I did a horrible job introducing that. This was um posted to the Barclays Twitter. Uh, feed i guess during pride month oh we're out of pride we're no longer oh, susceptible to during <laughs> katie, katie can finally say how she really feels about lgbt people um, do you think the ikea couches are gonna go on discount now they burn them right at the stroke of midnight it's not yeah. it's not very environmentally friendly um for, for people who don't know what we're talking about ikea this week released a bunch of couches these are just art couches they're unfortunately not for sale that were inspired by pride flags they uh notably left out the gay flag there was no there was like there was one for like asexuals which i gotta say i'm not sure that asexuality counts as a sexual orientation as much as it's maybe like a hormonal issue Um, anyway they had the asexuals had their own couch but gays did not get a couch i always fear that like we're going to stumble into what are low-key the most explosive areas of controversy i do think asexuality is one of them so uh do you think that asexuality is a is a orientation? Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. I uh, <laughs> no no no. I don't. I think it's one of those things where what I've noticed from when I've dipped a toe into like Tumblr discourse on things like um, asexuality or people who are aromantic. Tell me if I'm wrong. I'm sure there are some people who do not have sexual attraction. In other cases. It sort of seems like it's like 15-year-olds figuring yes. themselves out who maybe want to give a – put a like some of them will be like, I, I'm i a whatever sexual because I only want to have sex with people who I feel an emotional connection to. It's like that's not really an identity or an orientation. That's just how some people are wired. Right. I mean the question is is not even is asexuality a sexual orientation. It's should asexuality be included in the ever-expanding LGBTQXY rainbow acronym. And my argument is no, because this thing is the reason to have this this like loose co- coalition of sexual minorities is so that it is as a political block because you have this thing in common and this thing in common is was at least uh, oppression. And I'm not sure how asexuals are oppressed in society. Well, it would, so it's interesting. If you tried to construct sort of a story of asexuals being oppressed, you would really just circle back to like throughout history, a lot of people have been coerced to have sex for all sorts of reasons. The issue isn't being right. asexual. It's like being a woman or not having power. Right. So uh, right. you know what? I, I felt a little bit erased by the IKEA promotion because you know what flag was missing was the incel flag. That couch just has like a, a pattern of Cheeto stains already on it. You know, the other thing about this is somebody else pointed this out on Twitter, but these weren't actually couches. These were love seats. And why would you make a love seat for asexuals? <laughs> it's just half the size of all It's a other. chair. Actually, no. You know what? This sucks. But I know enough about this that that's considered offensive because asexuals can be in relationships just like everyone else. 
They just don't have sex. Yeah. Right. So. These are just called married people. <laughs> uh, all right. We haven't even successfully introduced the first segment yet. We've already horribly offended a group. Um, okay. So Barclays posted these videos for Pride Month. There was a lot. The one you just heard is the longer version that was posted on their website. And I don't know. It's just like this very, it jumped out at me as this like very dystopian, very 21st century uh, understanding of social justice where A, it's someone at a very powerful, fairly evil country, company. I mean, in 2018, these guys, um, let me just read this from CNN. So in 2018, uh, Barclays agreed to pay the United States $2 billion for allegedly deceiving investors about the quality of mortgage deals that fueled the 2008 financial crisis. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean they're never allowed to speak out about anything. It's just like uh, a lot of people have noted this, that this this new thing where like the biggest, most powerful institutions in the world are all mouthing the same words. And what was interesting about the clip is she says – you don't have to understand it. You just have to mouth along. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is. It's totally performative. I'm checking right now. So we're recording this on on July 1st, so the day after Pride. And I'm checking right now Barclays' uh, Twitter account to see if they have if they still have what uh, the rainbow flag in their in their their um, you know Twitter image. They do not. They're <laughs> <laughs> really? Back, back like, to the logo. <laughs> yep. The clock turned over. They changed it back. They changed it back to their normal logo of like a steel boot slamming <laughs> into the skull of a poor person being evicted. It actually, it's a, sort of an eagle. It's sort of a it's reminiscent <laughs> of a little sort of uh, Germany, nineteen thirty six. In the in the sidebar, however, um, you know, you have like Twitter. You might also like uh, you know other related brands, and Deutsche Bank comes up, and they still have the rainbow flag. So. When it comes down to choosing your bank, go with Deutsche Bank. Katie, to be a better ally, there are three things you need to do. You need to wise up, stand up, and show up. Yeah. And shop at Barclays. And shop at Barclays. And open uh, several accounts there you can't really afford. Uh, all right. Anyway, I don't know why. That jumped out at me. I, I don't like this sort of corporate um, activism thing. I think it's very bad faith. Uh, well, Jesse, it's uh, it's over for another year. We have, we have 11 more months of uh, of 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 corporations pandering for other causes besides gay shit. I'm very excited about that. Um, all right. So what did you want to talk about first? Do you want to do the slate thing or NHJ or what? Let's do a quick Nicole Hannah-Jones. You, did you notice how I got her name correct? Yes. Yeah. You've been working with a coach on this. I have. So let's do a quick update here. So the board of trustees at the University of North Carolina voted on Wednesday uh, to grant her tenure. And there was a little bit of drama at the meeting. Apparently, it was a closed door meeting, as it always is. Um, but some students showed up to protest and refused to leave and shoot at the student. There's video floating around. Nicole uh, Hannah-Jones posted it of the students being forced, like shoved out of the room, um, which uh, didn't certainly didn't look good, but also... They like they had to do the meeting, so I don't know. Yes, this was. Um, I don't even. So okay, sorry. I'm being annoying, but like, I do. Uh, I, obviously, this whole thing was political. I'm like torn in two directions because I want to be contrarian and and the sort of um, sainthood of her and the, and people treating this as though in the broad category of stories about academic freedom, this is like the thing to be worried about annoyed me. So I'm mostly just responding to how annoying the people on her side were on Twitter, which is probably not the most mature way to approach an issue. I, I totally feel you on this because part of this is because I think that her scholarship is, is overhyped. Um, and I don't think she's as good as her reputation would 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 lead one to to believe. A bigger reason is because she's mean to my co-host, which is a job that I this is my job. I don't like it when people try to take over my job. She is mean to you. She recently what was this about? She recently accused you of of like fomenting the the. The backlash to anti-critical yeah. race theory. It was very strange, right? And then when when called, we talked about this on a Patreon episode. We won't go much into it, but and uh, when called out on this, when people, including you, including me, including Matt Glacius, asked her to point to some evidence that you that you yourself have been, you know, uh, a proponent of banning critical race theory in schools. She just ignored it and like left up this tweet to her, you know, half a million followers, accusing you of something that you haven't done. I don't think that shows very like good due diligence or good reporting. That said, I also so the story subsequent reporting has shown that a major donor to the UNC School of Journalism named Walter Hussman Jr. The school of journalism is named after him. He's an Arkansas newspaper publisher. Um, expressed his uh, 
hesitation to have Nicole Hannah-Jones join the faculty. The idea that somebody who has promised the school $26 million or something like that is going to leverage his donations over hiring decisions, I find that egregiously bad. This guy has said that he wasn't actually when he called to complain about or emailed to complain about, about Nicole Hannah-Jones's hiring, that he wasn't trying to like leverage his his status as a donor, but that's kind of ridiculous. Like he owes the school $26 million and he calls and makes a complaint about a hiring decision. You know? Yeah. It's like, it's very corrupt. Um, and I, I should say like my own, my own qualms about her and I've read and enjoyed some of her work on, um, uh, segregated schools. For me, it's not just about like whatever dumb tweet she did about me. Um, uh, and and as others have pointed out, the whole 1619 project thing, all the vast majority of it is about her essay right. when it was a much bigger project. And perhaps we've lost sight of that. But uh, the the it is ironic, though, that her. So the essay that won the Pulitzer was hers, was this introductory essay that has been it like major parts of it have been questioned, you know, in. in I don't know if debunked is the right word, but have there like major doubt has been cast on the whole premise of this essay. This is the one that won the Pulitzer. Right. And, and, and my main gripe is there appear she, like the, the revolutionary war being fought for slavery thing, I think was like a really bad and, and sloppy historical claim. And, and my main gripe is the way she responded to it. And if, so, if anyone, I want to be fair, if anyone has examples of Nicole Hannah Jones, like engaging with her critics or, or responding to criticism fairly, that's, let me know, let us know. But like in my experience, she's not, willing to be criticized without um not she just doesn't react in a good way and i think if you're gonna make like fairly radical historical claims like that you need to um be willing to deal with with good faith criticism and i think a lot of it was good faith there's also people who do hate her just because they're like they want america as like their big wonderful daddy and they can't stand the idea of its its good name being sullied that's a it is a common strain in conservative thought this like very like immature nationalism but um a lot of the criticism was not that it was good faith all right so that probably wraps up this chapter of the uh nicole hannah jones controversy controversies whatever uh katie did you <laughs> this slate advice column about spanish was something else was it not it was so this was shared on twitter this week by lizzie wall of reason magazine uh so we can blame her for bringing this to our attention and for people who are not familiar slate has about 50 or 60 advice columns and they are often hilarious Uh, unwittingly hilarious. And I think this one falls into that category. So I will read you the question here. This is to Karen Feeding. This is their, uh, their parenting advice column. And they often have, oftentimes have different columnists, uh, like swap in and do a week or a day or whatever. So the, the, the advice giver in this case is someone named Doyen Richards. Dear Karen Feeding, My son is going into the seventh grade this fall, and apparently Spanish is required for him at his current school. He can also take other languages, but Spanish is required. My son is white, and I do not think white people should speak Spanish as it is cultural appropriation in my eyes. Latinx people have been mocked for speaking Spanish, and to congratulate a white child for learning it and speaking it doesn't sit well with me. I would much prefer he take French or Latin, but apparently the the district requires that all students take it. I want to protest this, but my wife has asked me not to, to let it go. I took Spanish when I was in school, but it was a different time, and I definitely do not speak it now. I have already told him he is never to speak it out of class. The only other option I have is to put him in private school, but I'm not a fan of privatized education either. Is making sure he never speaks it out of class a good enough solution, or do I need to put my foot down with the school here? So my <laughs> my theory is that it's a troll job. A troll. But what's but yeah. what's brilliant, I mean, like as with all good trolling, the white liberal meltdown we're presently experiencing over race often does get like this crazy. Like if that was in like a Robin D'Angelo book, you could believe that that was real. Well, uh, here's why I think that it might be real. Well, one, because people are fucking crazy. And I think that people do really think shit like this. But also the line about like, the only other option I have is to put him in private school, but I'm not a fan of privatized education. It hits all the points there. Um, So you could put him in private school, but you need to virtue signal that you're not a fan of privatized education, even though they're doing this 
even though the public school is doing is committing this hate crime by forcing your child to learn another language. Yeah, although that could also just be a talented troll would know to like add a little side. That's true. Anyway, the. But we, that's the thing about Slate advice columns is you never know if they are real or if they are trolls. No. And this goes back to like when um, uh, Emily Yaffe, who is just much better on every level, would run them. Even some of the ones yeah. she ran, it, you just, you're like, is this person make this up? How do they know? Um, in this case, I forget the author's name, but he did respond sort of like, dude, what are you talking about, right? Is Doyen a man? Is that a man's name? I thought he mentioned in another response being a large African-American. Oh, you're right. You're right. He does. He does mention. Yeah, he. Yeah, that's right. He mentions in the response that um, that he's a dad. He's a, a like a black father learning learning Japanese. That's right. Very appropriative. This here in defense. So – Oftentimes, the answers of Slate advice columns are as insane as the questions. And in this case, he gave the correct answer, which is like, dude, it's possible to be too woke. There's nothing wrong with learning Spanish as long as your child doesn't like go around saying like, I carambe or whatever, like wearing a sombrero, which I don't didn't actually think was necessary. The funny thing about this to me is that the, this idea that it's cultural appropriation in the first place, as opposed to like being a good citizen of the world and of your community and learning a language that people in your community probably speak. Yeah. Like, how is that not woke? Like, trying to learn other people's languages, that should be the woke position. But according to this letter writer, that's not the woke, the woke position. It's cultural appropriation. Well, there, I mean, there is this ideology of, of basically woke segregationism. And we should maybe come up with a better name for it than that because, like, it's it, historically it, it pales in comparison to actual apartheid or segregationism. But, but there's these, like, very neurotic people who really don't think we should do cultural dabbling. There are people who will be mad that a white chef makes, like, a Korean-infused dish. All these du- – half of the dumb blow-ups going on in, like, food and the arts come down to this belief system. And it's very silly and very neurotic. It totally is. So in addition to being a hilarious, possibly fake letter, this also gave me uh, a reason to go back and read some of my favorite Slate advice columns. And it reminded me of a recent event that I really should have told you about as soon as it happened, but I totally forgot. So last year, uh, before the pandemic, when I still had a had a real job um, at The Stranger, there was a letter to the Slate advice column, How to Do It, the column written by Rich Juzwiak, the former or current, I'm not quite sure, Jezebel Gawker, uh, gay dude. This column was called, I'm a heterosexual woman who's politically opposed to heterosexuality. So this was written January 27, 2020. And I saw this column and I wrote a column about it in The Stranger. So first I'll read you the question to Rich. I'm a cis woman and kind of a classic millennial sex pickle. I'm really repelled by heterosexuality politically and personally, but I am also really into dick. I've been thinking maybe I should look for bi, bi-curious gay dudes, but I'm not sure how best to do that. Rich, what would you think of a woman being on Grinder or Scruff? I do want to be respectful of gay men's spaces and not horn in where I'm not welcome, but I really would love to find a verse guy with queer politics who would who would be up for casually dating a woman. What do you think? If you were me, where would you look? Radical. So Rich's answer to this was sort of like, okay, you can do it, but be polite. But I thought the whole thing was stupid. So I wrote my own column. That must have been a slow news day. I wrote my own column in response to this column. Sort of like a a second opinion, an unsolicited second opinion. <laughs> I'll read you a little bit of, of my column so people can sort of get the tone. Assuming that this self-loathing heterosexual woman actually exists, she doesn't specify what exactly it is about heterosexuality, politically, whatever that is, that she finds so repellent. Perhaps it's the mandatory sex roles. Everyone knows the only way for women to get out of the missionary position and washing the dishes is to either go gay or date a bi man. That's it. There's no other possibility. <laughs> but to get serious for a moment, I'm curious about why this woman thinks bisexual or bi-curious dudes are somehow inherently better than straight men. Does she think there's something about men fucking men that makes them more feminist, more ethical? And if so, has she ever met one? Or has she ever heard of Jeffrey Dahmer? (laughs) Ironically, this letter writer is actually stereotyping queer men as sin of the highest order because queer men are actually just as complex and human and flawed as anyone else. Character is no more determined by sexuality than it is by eye color. And men on Grindr are no less likely to be good or bad than men on Tinder or Bumble. There are, however, more likely to be gay and to wonder why the hell she is on Grindr. 
So while this woman didn't ask for my advice, here's my unsolicited opinion. If you really want to be queer but can't give up the dick, find yourself a nice no-op trans woman. And if that doesn't solve this classic millennial sex pickle, there's always Tinder and Bumble. I'm honestly sort of surprised that that got published in The Stranger in 2020. This must have been – my editor must have been out for the day. Um, I don't think that they would publish that now. No. Anyway, so – a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago, I had, of course, totally forgotten about this. It was a long time ago, and uh, much has happened since January 2020. But a couple of months ago, I got a message on Reddit. Jesse, let me read this to you. Hey, I'm the odious slate letter writer you covered in this piece. Just wanted to say that your take was 100% accurate. I was being very shitty and very dumb. Should have accepted being straight and worked on my own gender role angst instead of trying to drag queer people into my bullshit a lot earlier in my life. Good lord. Anyway, belated thanks for the wake-up call, and sorry I'm opting for the anonymous Reddit means of contacting you like a coward, just going this route because I am, in fact, a coward. That's a really good response. Very, like She shows some like uh, that she bloomed some self-awareness. Yeah, she did. I wonder if she's a podcast listener. Um, I will say, I have sort of changed my mind on this. My my opinion on this now is that so Grinder does have have like you can be a straight woman on the app. They make like they make concessions for that. There's a whole like there's a category you can choose that. I still think it's like sort of dumb and, and counterproductive, and you're probably not going to get very far being a heterosexual woman on this app. That's primarily for gay men. But I no longer am so like appalled by this behavior. I, the, calling it a classic millennial sex pickle is kind of funny. But my feeling about it now is sort of like, you know what? It doesn't actually vi- violate the app's rules. And I guess I've become more of a libertarian because if the app like allows – if the business allows you to do this thing, then who am I to say that you shouldn't do this thing? Um, so uh, we have both we have both evolved in the in the two years <laughs> since this uh, since this was published. Her uh, her classic millennial sex pickle came to a uh, satisfying conclusion. I should ask her if she's uh, if she's got a husband now or or a boyfriend. Um, maybe uh, find out how her dating life is going. She's dating a very misogynistic gay guy now. <laughs> he makes her do all of the cooking and cleaning. Okay, so um, after getting this letter and, and reading the letter from Slate, I dove into some other classic Slate advice columns. Uh, Jesse, I just want to want to choose a couple of these to read to you. Please do. So this one is from uh, recently. It's June 2021. Also, the the advice column was also written to Karen Feeding, but the advice giver in this in this case is Nicole Chung. The letter writer writes. My husband's closest friend from childhood is Japanese-American, and although he moved back to Japan after college, they are still very close. He's our daughter's godfather, and they think of him and his wife as another uncle and aunt. We're also called uncle and auntie by his kids. For our daughter's fifth birthday, they sent her a sweet gift of a box full of Japanese candies, a stuffed toy, and a kimono in her size. It's absolutely gorgeous, but I'm hesitant to let her wear it as much as she's begged us to let her dress up and show it to her friends. I know how big of an issue cultural appropriation is, and I don't want her to to think that somebody else's culture is a costume. She has a lot of anti-racist children's books and books about kids from other cultures celebrating holidays and traditions, and this could be a great way for us to talk about the problems of white people appropriating other cultures and using them as costumes. But also, our friends have been asking asking us if she liked her kimono, and I don't know what to tell them. I will confess... I don't want to be thought of as another insensitive white lady who let her kids dress up as stereotypes of other cultures, and that may be a part of what's holding me back from letting her wear it. So I think an outside perspective might help. What do I do? Let her wear it or talk to her about why she can't? There's a... uh... (laughs) Channel Nicole Chung for a second. How do you answer this question? Um, There's a personality characteristic called neuroticism (laughs) that is correlated with a lot of um, bad outcomes. So you should... No, I mean, it's just like it, it is... The absolute dominance of of privileged white people in the racial justice conversation and their stupid, shitty, made up problems. I mean, if you put your kid in a kimono, kids dress up as things. And these are from actual Japanese people who want her to wear the kimono, correct? Right. I, I mean, yes, that's the part to me that's so funny is I think that what she's doing is actually more offensive. Like somebody gives you a gift and instead of enjoying the gift and saying that you like the gift and using the gift or whatever, you put the gift in the box and say, like, no, no, don't open Too the harmful, gift. right. Well, also, Too harmful. Also, like, based on how these dynamics play out or how I've seen them play out, I bet you anything, 
average Japanese person, like in Japan, unoffended. The average quarter Japanese, oh yeah, like, Twitter person. That's who would get mad about yeah. it. Yeah, you know, my dad went to he went to college at the American University of Beirut, and so he has um like a, a variety of like kifias and like whatever like things that people wear in the Arab world. And my lazy Halloween costume when I was a kid was was basically like putting a turban on, like every other year, <laughs> which is actually probably not as problematic as there was when my when we were in second grade. My sister dressed up as Harvey Gant. Do you know who that is? Yeah. Okay, so Harvey Gant, for people who don't know, he was a politician in North Carolina who ran against Jesse Helms, who's a black man. She did not wear blackface, but she had a like a, a picture of his face on a like on a popsicle stick, like a, a cardboard cutout picture of his face, and she just wore a suit. She actually won our second grade Halloween costume oh contest gosh. that year. I do not think uh, I do not think that 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 sort of costume would um would garner such praise now. No, if memory serves, that was the congressional race. Um, that generated an, an, uh, a timeless Michael Jordan quote. When he was asked why he didn't chime in on that against Helms, he said, Republicans buy sneakers too. <laughs> Does he have a job at Barclays? <laughs> this is a guiding principle of our podcast. Republicans <laughs> download podcasts too. Okay, so so that letter writer, like maybe it's the same person who's writing. Who's Maybe there's just one slate letter writer who just like reposes the same question over and over again, just like very concerned about cultural appropriation. All the, all this stuff we've been hearing about incredible advances in machine learning and AI, it's all just going toward generating sort of realistic slate advice letters. Okay, let's um let's do one more. This one is also Karen feeding. Karen feeding is actually I do not think the most egregiously stupid slate letter, letter or slate advice column podcast. That would be the not current but last incarnation of Dear Prudence. However, yeah. Oh my god, right. another subject. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so this one, uh, the letter answerer, the advice giver this week is a woman named Jamala Lemo. Lem- Lemo. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name. I think just Lemieux. Dear Karen Feeding, we live in a very multicultural and socioeconomically diverse area in South Florida. We are white, and both my husband and I are well-off professionals. Our four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, who has grown up socializing with all types of children, has a close friend who is black and one who is Brazilian. There are two Hispanic little girls at the preschool that have made meanish comments to my child based on her race and appearance. They have told her that they don't like her because of her blonde hair and that they won't be friends with her because she doesn't speak Spanish. I've reiterated to my daughter that she should be kind, that all people are same on the inside, that we shouldn't judge people by their appearance. This past week, she informed me that the girls have now told her that they will only be friends with other girls who have dark skin, not like skin like hers. We are only three weeks into the school year, but I'm thinking of emailing the teacher. Comments about skin color and hair color seem really wrong to me. And if my child said she didn't want to be friends with a little Hispanic girl because her skin was too brown or because her hair is black, I would certainly take action. Is it too soon to reach out? And if not, what should I say? Okay, this is a signed, sad, blind, blonde child. Can I just predict what, what, what happens here? I bet you anything she's going to pick up on the like, oh, so you're saying it's reverse racism, that that's anywhere near as bad. Uh, Jesse, are you familiar with this one? <laughs> Did you write so this? Obvious. No, unfortunately, when you spend too much time on Twitter, you internalize the stupid people's opinions. Yes. Okay. So, uh, so the letter answerer, there's sort of a there's sort of a long response here. So I'm just going to pick out a couple of, of of pieces of it. You're a mom who takes pride in surrounding her child with diverse neighbors and a diverse circle of friends. So I trust you will take this seriously. The hostility that these Hispanic or perhaps Latinx (laughs) children have displayed towards your daughter is inappropriate and must be addressed regardless of what may have triggered it. However, I am curious to know if they have simply targeted her for looking different than they do or if there is something more complicated at hand. You say you're in a culturally and economically diverse community, which likely means an area that is undergoing gentrification. You also pointed out that your family is well-to-do, which leads me to infer that these children may be from a somewhat sem- somewhat different background. And even if they do have upper-middle-class parents, there are still some sharp, sharp contrast to how your respective families are expe- experiencing South Florida as well as America. Okay, so let's just pause there for a second. So this this assumption that because these these brown people uh, live in South, like are American and live in South Florida, that they are not upper middle class. I find that sort of odd because preschool, daycare, these things are generally segregated by class. 
No, I'm kidding. I'm sure a, a wealthy white person has their kid in like a bottom rung daycare. Center. A section eight daycare for <laughs> sure. For sure. So that's that's first of all, it's just I, I like I really appreciate the assumption that this is <laughs> like gentrification must be happening because it's South Florida. Like this is this is one of the most diverse places in the country. Right. And just this assumption like, oh, if you live in this place, you, you, you live in a diverse area, it must be gentrifying rather than just like, oh, you live in like a, one of the like most diverse regions of fucking America. Right. OK, continuing. Between the likely changes in your neighborhood and the increasingly open contempt for Hispanic and Latinx people that has been soaked by the current presidential administration, there is a strong possibility that these kids may have seen, heard, or experienced some things that might think them hostile towards or fearful, fearful of white folks. So I should say, this is 2019. She's talking about Donald Trump, not Joe Biden. But to move on. The girls may have heard their parents talk about rising rents, pushing neighbors out of a neighborhood that may be changing to serve a wealthier, wider population. They may have witnessed friends being mistreated by members of the MAGA hat masses or some racist-ass liberals. They may even have seen loved ones harassed or detained by U.S. Uh, immigration and custom, custom enforcement agents. The number of assumptions that she is making... The pr- it's, project- it's projecting. I mean, if a, if a, sorry, but if a white person was like, this is what Latino families think about, it'd be fucking borderline racist yeah i was just gonna say that there's a word for this and it's racist that's so weird and also these are these are these are preschool kids right so these are kids who are three or four years old do you think that these three or four year olds are actually cognizant of like maga hats katie three or when three-year-olds are mean it's always for a good reason okay three-year-olds are never just like mean for no reason come on this is this is reminiscent of the other classic slate advice column my two-year-old isn't anti-racist enough (laughs) do you know about that one I think I read it once I find these so difficult to get through because they just like make me mad and tired this one is unfortunately this really I really wish that I could have read it but it's it's behind a paywall I don't know why they would put this this classic letter behind a paywall, but they did, and there's no fucking way I'm joining Slate Plus. So if anybody has has access to the classic Slate column, my two-year-old isn't anti-racist enough, please get us a PDF. <laughs> okay, that's it. Um, I don't think I had any more of these advice columns. There are so many more. If anybody is just, if you're just like bored, you have nothing to do. You did the heroic work of gathering many of these. We'll include links in the uh, in the show notes. It was interesting to go back and read. I read a couple of old Emily Yaffe columns and then to compare those to to the Slate Advice columnist of today. It's really a different world. Uh, yeah, I think that's um, an understatement. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, before we get into the last segment, uh, housekeeping, you can always reach us at blotterimportedpodcast at gmail.com. We have a subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash reported. Jesse, did you see the fascinating conversation happening on our subreddit right now about how uh, someone posted about how like four of her five ex-girlfriends are now trans? I did see this. I was scared to talk about it, but this goes into your theory about uh, the erasure. It's not a fucking theory. It's a it's an observation. I'll, why don't I, should I include a link to it in the show? It's basically... She was basically saying, oh, this is, it was posted by a a butch lesbian, right? Who's finding she can't find. No, a femme who likes butches. A femme who likes butches, sorry. And can't find butches to date because they are all transitioning. Was that the gist? Yeah, that's the gist of it. And then a lot of other people weighed in. And I love this because I've been talking about this for years. And I think that people often think that I'm exaggerating the scope of this. And I'm not. Like I am I am talking about my own experience for sure, but my observation, I've said I don't I've said this fucking a million times. It's like somewhere between like a third and a half of the the like former dykes that I know are now trans or non-binary, at least. And that number is constantly going up. So it was for me to like to, for someone else to validate that this is happening elsewhere was um uh, I don't know. Validating. It, it, it was validating. Uh, <laughs> that's the discussion you can get into at reddit.com.com slash r slash Uh, merch, barpod.org, and uh, premium subscription, right, Katie? Yes, we have a premium subscription program. If you go to patreon.com slash blocked and reported for just $5 a month, you can get ad free episodes of this very podcast in addition to three extra episodes of this podcast every fucking month. We also do live chats. We do Ask Me Anythings. Um, you get advanced 
Maybe. Did we talk about that? Advanced uh, ticket sales to live show? Yeah, it looks like we're going to do a live show and we will likely be able to release some advanced tickets to that person. You also get uh, the weekly free episodes early. Yeah, so lots of good stuff there. Please uh, come check it out. Patreon.com slash Blocked and Reported. So this last bit, um, this has been an interesting story sort of unfolding for a while. I've written a little bit about sort of blowups in the young adult fiction world, some of the sort of social justice wars going on there. There was a really interesting um, flare-up of this stuff in sci-fi in January of 2020. So in Clark's World magazine, which is a very highly regarded uh, sci-fi publication, January of 2020, they published a story called I Sexually Identify as an Attack Helicopter. That's by an author named Isabel Fall. Katie, are you familiar with that uh, line of text? Yes. So it basically, it's basically a way of making fun of trans people. Like you're saying, oh, you're a woman. I'm an attack helicopter. Ha ha ha. It goes back to like 2014. It is not a re- an original joke. I don't think it's like. A- Somebody like whoever came up with that should do an NFT for it. The first originator <laughs> of the. I'm a, I identify as a, a jack helicopter. That's a good idea. Um, so the title of the story is designed to be, you know, shocking to get people's attention because the subset of people who will know what this means will be um, offended by it. But it's like a really mind-blowing story. It starts, I sexually identify as an attack helicopter. I lied. According to U.S. Army Technical Manual Zero, the soldier as a system, attack helicopter is a gender identity, not a biological sex. My dog tags in Form 3349 say my body is an XX karyotype somatic female. It's just, it turns into this incredible story about the army basically co-opting gender to make more efficient killing machines. And it talks about this person's identity as an attack helicopter, their gunner's identity. There's some sort of crazy war going on in like a near future U.S. I'll include a link to the story. I just, if you like sci-fi, I I don't have the vocabulary to explain why it's good. Um, It's just, it's really good. Now. Because of the title, as soon as it went up, people started saying it was transphobic. And they started saying, this is just like a reactionary trying to troll people. And not long after that, uh, Neil Clark, who runs Clark World, uh, confirmed this rumor that Isabel Fall was herself a trans woman. But he also took the story offline. And there's this long, to me, like pretty cowardly statement he posted explaining his decision to take it offline. Let me... Explain one bit that I uh, read one bit that I find problematic. Uh, own voices is this thing in fiction of like having uh, gay characters written by gay people, trans characters written by trans people. Even with own voices authorship and own voices sensitivity reading, it is still possible to miss something. In this case, we can see two groups of trans readers with directly opposing views that are deeply rooted in their own experiences and perspectives. In some cases, what made the story speak to some is also what alienated others. Neither perspective is wrong, but they appear to be incompatible with one another on some level. Knowing that this was a potentially controversial story, we should have employed a broader range of sensitivity readers. So now it's not, you you don't just need one sensitivity reader, you need all of them in case someone somewhere finds a story hurtful. Um, they, they should have gotten a sensitivity reader who sexually identifies as, a, as an attack helicopter. There you go, that would have solved it. I, I just, I couldn't really believe this because it's like, Neither perspective is wrong. Well, I mean, if you're going to pull a story offline, albeit this was at Isabel Falls uh, Falls request, that's sort of like a big deal. And I I, I do think just saying I'm offended by the subject of the story because it's something a reactionary person would say without factoring in what's actual the story. Like that's just a plain misunderstanding of of fiction, right? Yes, it is. It is, but of course, like we judge these things by these new rules that so- somehow popped up in the last few years. Right, right. Rules that we never would have accepted before. That like, if a racist character says something racist, that means the author is racist, which has literally been the reason young adult books have, have come under intense scrutiny and sometimes been canceled. Um, there's a really good quote from ContraPoints. Uh, she, she's very good uh, trans YouTube creator. She did a basically film length thing on canceling quote just because you were hurt by content i made doesn't mean that that content is bad or that i'm victimizing you in some way she basically just points out that people are like people are traumatized by random stuff and creators can't really account for that uh, i don't know it's just like people people who get pissed off online can give themselves so much power and i think that's a big part of the problem um my favorite response which i didn't know at the time this was back in january of 2020 
N.K. Jemison, who's a highly acclaimed sci-fi and fantasy author, um, who's frequently a t- terrible person online. Kat Rosenfield and I had an unfortunate run-in with her. She had a series of tweets after the story was taken down. Quote, I'm glad the story was taken down. Quote, not all art is good art. Sometimes art causes harm. Then later, quote, I haven't read this story. <laughs> so w- one of the most presently influential people in sci-fi publicly cheering for a story being pulled down because it's harmful. This is her argument when she hasn't read it. And this is a story about by a completely unknown person trying to gain a foothold in the sci-fi world. It must suck to be a sci-fi or fantasy or young adult writer. How, how do you possibly navigate this shitty climate full of just like people trying to destroy everyone else's work? Well, so do we know that the author is completely unknown? So this was written under a something of a pseudonym. This is not the name yeah. that the person that the author goes by. All the available evidence suggests like this was someone who was, um, and we'll get to why we know some of this in a minute, but someone who was basically toying with coming out as trans publicly, but was not a known figure in sci-fi or anywhere else. Yeah. Okay. Was it possible that it was Clark himself? <laughs> Can you imagine? That'd be an Or, I don't know, Jesse Single? You you have been singing this, this essay's praises. <laughs> um, all right. So this week, Vox has an article by Emily Vanderwerf, um, critic at large there. We've talked about her a little bit before. She was very opposed to the Harper's Letter and sent a note to her bosses saying that uh, the fact that Matt Iglesias, her then colleague, signed the letter, made her feel less safe at Vox. Uh, again, And then she posted this letter on Twitter for everyone to see. Yes. And then I, along with everyone else, made fun of it. I did a couple times. And then she said that I was the reason for a um, cavalcade of sub- subsequent alleged death threats. It's always Jesse Singles fault. Always blame the Jew. Blame the Jew. Um, anyway, setting that aside, this is an interesting article, article she wrote that's basically explaining to people this controversy. She was able to get in touch with Isabel Fall. And um, the short version is Isabel Fall, this like destroyed her. And she checked into a hospital with suicidal ideation. She is now just not going to come out as trans because her sort of introduction to being trans online, even under a pseudonym, was so ugly. And it, it's an interesting piece because Emily Vanderwerf is like clearly upset by what happens and clearly thinks what the internet did was horrible, but she's also very committed to the idea that cancel culture or whatever you want to call it is not a big deal. This is like pretty core to that like Vox universe uh, ideology. Well, and it's also hilarious. Just like the lack of self-awareness is is hilarious because she's she's basically saying like this person was unfairly – unfairly pegged as being transphobic and it ruined her life. Huh. Huh. <laughs> Where else has that happened, Jesse? Emily Vanderwerf is never going to like broaden her mind and extend that extend that possibility to other people like potentially like Matt Iglesias or Jesse Single or whoever. And so another thing, she points to so you wrote a a paywalled Substack about this about this conflict when this drama when it came out and she uses that as in a piece by Connor Frieder, Connor Friedersdorf in the Atlantic as evidence of like this thing existed on like sci-fi Twitter and trans Twitter and then the media picked it up and then like, that's what made it a problem. Your shit was behind a paywall. Yeah, for what it's worth, I didn't quite interpret it. I think she was just pointing out that, like... Let's just see. Let's just see. Let's read it. Uh, Hang on. Most of the people I talked to for this story, regardless of whether they initially criticized or appraised attack helicopter, cited articles by established pundits, including one in The Atlantic, as supercharging the discussion. Established pundits right there links to your paywalled substack. How many of the people do you think that Emily Vanderwerf talked to for this story are subscribers, paid subscribers to your substack? Well, I would hope all of them, Katie. It's a wonderful yeah, subject. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You have a huge audience among hyper-woke online friends of Emily Vanderwerf. Yeah. The, the part that really got to me was, I'm just going to read this paragraph. It's very easy to do a paranoid reading on Twitter, says Lee Mandelo, a PhD candidate at the University of Kentucky, uh, blah, blah, blah. They were among the earliest advocates of attack helicopter, and they wrote a lengthy Twitter thread collected as a blog post about paranoid versus reparative readings of art in response to Clark's world pulling the story. So th- this paranoid versus reparative readings framework I find very useful. Um, Vanderwerf continues, the delineation between paranoid and reparative readings originated in 1995 – 
with influential critic Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. A paranoid reading focuses on what's wrong or problematic about a work of art. A reparative reading seeks out what might be nourishing or healing in a work of art, even if the work is flawed. Importantly, a reparative reading also tends to consider what might be nourishing or healing in a work of art for someone who isn't the reader. I don't want to take everything back to the Harper's Letter, but the Harper's Letter did not say anything anyone actually finds offensive. The reason this was a blow up is because people, including Vanderwerf, read it in a deeply paranoid way, including one person who literally crossed out the words, replaced those words with things like, I question trans people's rights to exist. You could not actually read the text unless you read it in a very paranoid way and come away thinking it was bad, let alone so bad that you should contact your bosses over your uh, colleague signing it. Do you think that Emily Vanderwerf, like when she was writing this piece, she had any sort of shades of like, am I a hypocrite? <laughs> I mean, it's weird. She doesn't, it's a, overall a good piece. And if I didn't know who the author was, I would have enjoyed it more. She doesn't pull punches. She's like, people acted online in a really shitty way. She also captures an important dynamic, which is cisgender people helped launch this pile on against uh, Isabel Fall because they're only sort of retweeting the paranoid takes from transgender people. If you're a cisgender person, you have no incentive to like surface, oh, I know, I think it's not a, that big a deal. I think the story is fine. But yeah, I, so because she's committed to like not seeming to side with the cancel culture people, and I agree that's a bad term, but my argument all along has just been like social media has made these pylons brutal and unfair and they target everyone. Um, you know, she ends the piece basically being like, in some tellings of the story, we've robbed Isabel Fall of her agency. She really, she decided to cancel herself, which is like, not really. Uh, she says she would have. She was on the path toward coming out as a trans woman if all these assholes on the internet hadn't like destroyed her mental health. So I just, I think again, I do think it's an interesting piece. People should read it. I'll endorse it. But I just think Emily Vanderwerf is not sort of grappling with like, no, like this shit is really fucked up and it didn't exist twenty years ago and we should be able to talk about that. One thing that I found interesting about this is that so Isabel Fall, nobody knows what her who she is besides this name. She's nowhere online. And this experience, I don't know what her and it it almost feels weird to call her her because she says in the piece like she's not transitioning. So I don't know how how the author of the piece actually identifies now, but we'll call her her. So this attacks like normally when you have an attack on your reputation online, it's on your actual reputation. It's on Jesse Single. It's on Katie Herzog. It's on Emily Vanderwerf or whoever. It's attached to your actual identity. And so she still had this, this like, she checked in, checked herself into a mental hospital, even though the name itself wasn't attached to her, her, her reputation as a, or her, her prior reputation, the, the, the word, the, the name that she was known under. Yeah. I think it's complicated, but I, I do think like her goal, maybe her goal was to eventually attach her real identity to Isabel Fall because this story, um, she eventually changed the title, republished it. It was nominated for a Hugo award, which is a very big deal. So this could be like under normal circumstances. Um, and this is someone who's, who's in her early thirties or early to mid thirties. This is like how you start a career as a sci-fi writer. So, um, she also talks a little bit about how just like she interpreted this as I wasn't successful enough at writing as a woman, which triggered her dysphoria. I, I don't think that's a healthy way to look at it because people attack everyone online for a million reasons. If anything, being attacked online is a good sign you are a woman. Well, maybe Isabel Fall is actually Emily Vanderwerf. We'll never know. Whoa. Wow. You really, uh, there could be some twists here. Uh, all right. As always, there's links to all this stuff in the show notes. I, I highly recommend you read the short story itself. And then um, I unlocked my own subsec on at the time. And then there's Emily Vanderwerf's follow-up, which is uh, worth a read. Anything else this week, Katie? I think that's it. Happy 4th of July or whatever. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, do not adopt any political positions that have not been pre-approved by ExxonMobil. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you need advice on parenting, don't ask Slate, ask Blocked and Reported. <laughs>